Would you open God's precious holy word to 2 Samuel? We've come to chapter 16. The plight of David as he escapes Jerusalem from Absalom, his son, is that it has created a divide among the people. And in that divide, we find that among the people there are cursings and counsels. Some are cursing David, others are providing counsel and even providing misinformation to Absalom on David's behalf so that Absalom can make poor decisions. It's interesting, this whole story. And uh, this is sort of the middle part of it here. We've already, we've already seen how Absalom has rebelled and how the nation is divided in many ways. At this moment in time, when we come to chapter 16, Absalom has the upper hand. We cannot remove from the study the fact that the whole thing started when David took Bathsheba. The prophet told David that this was going to bring irreversible trouble to his family. Uh, that God was, had forgiven his sin, but the consequences of his sin would be long lasting and would especially negatively affect his family. So after David took Bathsheba, what happens? The sterling character of David is now severely tarnished, especially in his own household. So then David's heir to the throne, Amnon, he takes his sister because somehow he's infatuated with his sister and he rapes her and Absalom, her full brother, now becomes vengeful toward his half-brother, Amnon. Absalom is actually the next one in line for the throne. He waits his time out and many, many months later, he has the opportunity and he kills his brother, Amnon. So the sword has come into David's family terribly and it's not over with. David does what he has to do and he banishes. Actually, according to the law, he should have had him slain, but he didn't. Now remember the Bible in this context has described Absalom as an extraordinarily handsome man with hair that when he got a haircut weighed 200 shekels. Uh, you know, a shekel, that's a lot of hair. <laughs> You might get that much out of my ears and off my back, I don't know, but you won't get it off my head, that's for sure. 
You know you're old when you go to the barber and you spend, they spend more time on your nose, your eyebrows, and your ears than they do your head. So Absalom is physically attractive. Not only that, we've seen how he schmoozed everybody. He was, man, he was, he was the slick politician. And so people begin to pay attention to him. He goes to the city gate where civil lawsuits are settled and people are grumbling because they're not being settled quickly enough. David has not yet settled on another son to be his heir. He's not training one of his sons in the royal court, which he should have already been doing because David is getting up in years. And it seems as though there is a gentle disgruntlement among the people. David is the one who suffers at the conspiracy of Absalom. So people really begin to just stand behind Absalom and he's getting encouragement that, you know, it's time for him to take, to displace his father, take his father's place, take his father's throne. So the time comes, David, a shrewd warrior, a shrewd man sees in the immediate future the handwriting on the wall and so he gathers his family, those closest to him, and he begins to escape the city of Jerusalem. His entourage plus his 600 mighty men, his great warriors, certain elements of, of other elements of the army begin to swear their loyalty to David and they begin to escape with him. Some of them, David said, no, you will serve me better if you stay where you are and serve as a spy. Keep me apprised of what's happening in the court of Absalom. Give me regular reports. Among those were the priests and um, uh, another counselor to uh, a couple of other ones. So David is making his way and his goal is to get across the Jordan River, but he's slowed by his compassion for the people who are loyal to him. So they're having to move as a big, large group, unlike the way David used to move when he was being pursued by Saul. He had a, he had a younger group of men and it was just him and those guys and they could move quickly, but it's not the way it is. And he has children and women and, and older people. So they're moving slowly. And they're making their way to the Jordan River. One of the saddest pictures in the Bible is the previous uh, chapter 15 that shows the mighty King David without shoes and nothing on but just a, a, humble, uh, a humble cloak with a hood and dressed as, as quickly as he could have dressed, not even taking time to put his shoes on and with with nothing else attending to him except those who are loyal, David climbing the hill and moving away, looking like a homeless beggar. Very sad, sad picture. On the other hand, Absalom is gaining in glory and uh, all of the people that are surrounding him are happy because he's such a handsome guy 
and uh, he's winsome in his character. David was the warrior. He was a thinker, and he tried to stay two, stay two and three moves ahead of everybody, especially his enemies. Absalom is not this way. He's seeking his own glory. He sort of flies by the seat of his britches, and he's not staying in the game the way that David did. So David is moving, and he's making plans to leave spies and to put spies in certain places, knowing that Absalom would probably trust them. And in their loyalty, they would make sure that David would get regular reports. He was able to place his mighty men in strategic places and was protecting all the people as best as he could. And they're making their way. So chapter 15 was something of an encouraging chapter. But chapter 16 is a dis, something of a discouraging chapter for King David. So this... this uh, Situation continues, and so let's look at it. Though God, through the prophet, has judged David for his sin, and David knows that he cannot escape the consequences of his sin. Remember, we studied Psalm 51 when along in that time, and from his heart he prayed and was broken before God because of his sin and God's judgment on him. Remember, he prayed, don't take your Holy Spirit from me. In that prayer, David was asking God not to take the anointing of the Spirit upon him to be king. Don't take this away from me. So God never took that away in David's lifetime. God has a covenant with David, the messianic covenant that the son of David would rule and sit on David's throne and all that. So David still has, and what more did he need, the promise of God in his life. Even in this terrible, dark time of his life, Yahweh meets the needs of David and those who are loyal to him. So let's look at it. David was a little past the top of the mount. Behold, Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, came toward him. Okay, Mephibosheth was Jonathan's son. Jonathan was Saul's son, King Saul. So this is the grandson of Mephibosheth. We've seen this guy before. He's crippled. When the threat seemed to be coming to Saul's household, the nursemaid to, to Mephibosheth took him and in her haste to escape, somehow dropped the little child, messed up his leg, and he never, ever recovered from a ruined leg. So he was a cripple all of his life. Now, this is Mephibosheth. Remember, he is of the household of Saul. There are still people in Israel, even at this date, who are, especially the Benjamites, who are, who are still loyal to the household of Saul. It, it seems, as you see it develop. So Mephibosheth came toward him with a pair of saddled asses, and upon them were 200 loaves of bread. 
and a hundred clusters of raisins and a hundred summer fruit and a flask of wine. The king said to Ziba, what for are these to you? What are these? What are, the, what are you doing here? And Ziba said, well, these donkeys are for the king's household to ride on and the bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine for the faint to drink in the wilderness. So they have needs of hunger and to be strengthened and refreshed. These are not just all young soldiers. These are, this is a mixture of people, David himself, close to 60 years old. So this is a, this is a wide ranging age of people from children all the way up to older adults. The Lord, I mean, this just happened, right? David was just a little bit here. God knew where he was. God knew the situation. And God being aware, of course, great sovereign God, provided miraculously, sovereignly, for someone to bring provisions for him and his entourage. Now, the king said, where is your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, behold, he lives in Jerusalem. For he said, today, the house of Israel will restore my father's kingdom to me. Now, this is Mephibosheth. This is um, the grandson of Saul. And he sees an opportunity now to try, apparently, and we don't know how truthful at this point Ziba really is. David had been kind to Mephibosheth. A few chapters earlier, maybe you'll remember that. And Mephibosheth, it seemed, had pledged his loyalty. But here, Ziba seems to report that Mephibosheth apparently wants to take advantage of the confusion in the nation where people are divided between David and Absalom. And maybe, maybe he can muster up enough soldiers, whatever, rebels, to displace them both and restore the household of Saul into the royal court. That's why he says what he says. The king said to Ziba, behold, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. Ziba said, I prostrate myself. Let me find favor in your eyes. O Lord, my Lord, O king, Adonai, my Lord. He calls, he calls David his, his Lord, his leader, his master. Now, God honors David's submission. King David came to notice the Holy Spirit continues to call him King David. King David came to Baharim. Behold, there came out of there a man from the family of the house of Saul, whose name was Shimei, the son of Gerah, coming forth and cursing. He was cursing David. He threw stones at David and all and at all of King David's servants and at all of the people and at all of the mighty men who were on his right hand and on his left hand. That's kind of dumb. These mighty men, you know, that's like kicking Superman in the shin or something. And so said Shimei in his curse, be gone, be gone, you man of blood and you wicked man. Yahweh has returned upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose stead you have reigned. And Yahweh has given the kingdom into the hands of Absalom, your son. And behold, you are in your own evil for you are a man of blood. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, Zeruiah said, said to the king, 
Why should this dead dog curse my Lord, the king? Let me go over, I beg you, and cut his head off. Well, that seemed like a, that'd shut him up, wouldn't it? He wouldn't be throwing any more stones or, or cursing. That seems like a good option. But there are two options here. Remember, David is very sensitive spiritually. He still remembers how the prophet said to him, you are that man. Boy, that's, those are words that never left his mind. And the king said, what is it between me and you, sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse. Because Yahweh has surely said to him, curse David. Who then shall have the right to say, why have you done so? Okay, so David says, you know, God is sovereign. He wouldn't be up here doing this if God disallowed it. So David says, I'm going to have to take this. I have to take it. David said to Abishai and all of his servants, behold, my son who came from my body seeks my life. How much more now that the Benjamites should do it? These are the, you remember Saul was a Benjamite, the tribe of Benjamin. Let him alone. Let him curse. For Yahweh has bidden him. In David's heart, he senses that Yahweh intends for David to remember that he has sinned. And that he must walk humbly before God. And so David says, don't cut his head off. I don't know why the idiot is up there thinking he can get away with this, but don't. The only reason would be that Yahweh has put him there. To keep me mindful and to do away with any pride that I may have. And to do away with with any sense of self-worth. I'm going to have to walk humbly before Yahweh. And Yahweh knows that I, I need to hear this. I need to suffer this. I need to remember what the prophet said. Perhaps Yahweh will see the tears of my eye and Yahweh will return to me good instead of his curse on this day. So as we've seen in the Psalms that we've been studying on Sunday nights, David casts all of his care upon Yahweh. He's going to let Yahweh settle the issue. David and his men went by the road and Shimei went along the hillside opposite him going and cursing as he threw stones toward him and he threw earth. He, when he ran out, he threw dirt, anything he could get hold of. And the king and all the people that were with him were weary and he refreshed himself there. So they had to stop and rest and this guy is still hurling his insults and stones. And the truth of the matter, as we are reminded, is that David's throne was stolen. This, it, 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 Absalom is, of course, not God's choice. And while this is, a, this is a darker side of the situation, it emerges after this chapter. It emerges into finally a victory for David. And Absalom and all the people, the men of Israel, came to Jerusalem, and Ahithophel was with them. Remember that guy? He was the chief counselor. He always gave David good advice. 
But now he's on Absalom's side and he's giving Absalom good advice. And it came to pass when Hushai, the archite, David's friend, had come to Absalom, that Hushai said to Absalom, long live the king, long live the king. Now you have to go back a little bit, if you remember. This guy, Hushai, he wanted to go with David. He was loyal to David. And David said, no, I want you to serve Absalom the way that you've served me. Only whatever Ahithophel says, you mess it up a little bit. You throw in an alternative that really is not a good alternative, but make the king, make Absalom think that it's a good idea. Oh, that's a good thing. And just sort of keep the thing stirred up and you'll serve me better and keep me apprised. So he's really David's spy. Absalom said to Hushai, is this your kindness to your friend? Why did you not go with your friend? Hushai said to Absalom, no, but to whom Yahweh and these people and all the men of Israel have chosen, to him will I be and with him will I abide. Secondly, whom should I serve? Should I not serve in the presence of his son? As I have served in your father's presence, so will I be in your presence. Now, if you think about it, he hadn't really told anything that's wrong. He just told it the way that he knew Absalom would accept. Absalom was full of himself. Absalom, as surely as he knew people enjoyed being schmoozed by all of his accolades toward people, he enjoyed it himself from other people. I mean, after all, good grief, if you have 200 shekels worth of hair and you're the most handsome guy in the world, don't you want to hear it? So he enjoys this. Well, I've taken, I've taken the friend of my father to be my own. And Absalom said to Ahithophel, give yourself counsel what we shall do. So David is on a slow roll toward the Jordan River with his people. They can't move fast. Absalom knows this. What shall we do? All right, so here, here it comes. Ahithophel said to Absalom, come into your father's concubines that he has left to keep the house and all Israel will hear that you are abhorred of your father. Then the hands of all that you are with you shall be strengthened. One of the things that a, in this culture, in this day, back in those days, a conquering king would take the Harlem of the defeated king for his own. This was the height of insult and humiliation to the defeated king. And it was a large statement to the people that this guy really is the king. He's in charge. Nobody can take the king's harem. Did I say Harlem? Well, he probably had one of those too. And it gave him trouble as well. His harem and Harlem harem. His harem, all of his concubines, his wives. And this would make the people see that uh, Absalom was in, shut up. How could I? Harem, Harlem, harem, Harlem. You come here and preach it. Okay. <laughs> Where was I? Oh, yeah. And they spread for Absalom a tent upon the roof, and Absalom came to his father's concubines 
before the eyes of all Israel. The height of humiliation. I'm about to laugh. I have to just. (laughs) Okay. And the counsel of Ahithophel, which he counseled in those days, was as if a man inquired of the, and this would be the oracle of Elohim, the oracle of God, the word of God. So was all the counsel of Ahithophel, both to David and to Absalom. Now, this is what this means. Ahithophel was a smart and wise man. If you got advice from Ahithophel, it was just like an oracle from God. That's how highly he was uh, thought of with regard to his counsel. The word of God even says so. Whatever he said, well, it was like it was almost like it was coming from God himself. So it was as though he inquired of the oracle of Elohim or of God. Now, I've run out of clicking. Let's see. Oh, the story goes on, but I'll have to stop there. That's right. This is the last slide. No wonder it's not going anywhere. (laughs) Meanwhile, back in Jerusalem... The plot is being laid that Absalom is an idiot if he doesn't listen to Ahithophel. The Bible says so right there. Remember who she, remember that guy, the friend of David? He comes into play as well. We'll continue to see how sovereign and powerful God is in the minds and the decisions of men. You know, the Bible says that the heart of the king is in the hand of God. We'll see that really work itself out, but we're going to stop right here. Just outside of Harlem (laughs) at the harem of the former harem of David. And we will have our deacon prayer time.